We see religious freedom continue to be imperiled. We saw amendments become implemented that were based on Sharia law banning about two dozen activities, including attempts to convert outside of Islam. Hello and welcome to the USERF Spotlight podcast, a weekly podcast series by the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom, where we take a deep dive into religious freedom conditions around the world, breaking the situation down for you. Each week, we focus on a different country, region, or topic. Not only do we analyze and explain the religious freedom situation to our listeners, but we also make policy recommendations to the United States government in order to address the immense challenges we bring to light here. Now, here is the host of our show, USERF Director of Outreach and Policy, Dwight Bashir, to lead today's discussion. Welcome to USERF Spotlight. Today, we're going to discuss the downward spiral for religious freedom conditions in Malaysia. In recent years, Malaysia's government has gone through unprecedented political turbulence. In 2018, it had its first change of power since independence in 1957 under the Pakatan Harapan coalition. The coalition came in with the support uh, from the Malaysia human rights community as the government pledged to commit to international human rights treaties and standards but ultimately failed to do so. And in February 2019, before the COVID pandemic reached Malaysia, the Pakatan Harapan coalition collapsed, bringing in old powers under a new coalition that lasted until August of this year. Now, Malaysia maintains a dual legal system and a constitutional order that supposedly places the civil court above Sharia law, but devolves to each state and federal territories the ability to develop their own right religious laws. These laws are obligatory for Muslims within those states and territories. In our most recent annual report earlier this year, we recommended that the State Department include Malaysia on its special watch list for engaging in or tolerating severe violations of religious freedom. And much of what we discuss here in this episode today, you can read in further detail in our new report released just this week on Malaysia. And we're fortunate today and have with us the author of that report, USERF uh, policy analyst Patrick Greenwald, to go deeper on these developments in Malaysia. Welcome, Patrick. Hi, thank you so much. So let's start with Malaysia's dual legal system, as I mentioned. Can you share with our audience the context and elaborate on ways in which this system strays from international religious freedom standards? Yeah, definitely. So the Malaysia constitution that was established even before independence in 57, uh, was oriented on a secular axis. However, through Article 3 of the Constitution, Islam was named as the religion of the Federation. And the Constitution granted the power to make provisions for regulating Islamic religious affairs to the parliament. And Article 11 further established the parameters of religious freedom by giving the government the right to control and restrict the propagation of other religious doctrine or belief among persons professing the religion of Islam. Um, So this dual legal system was kind of established uh, early on uh, in the Federation of Malaysia. So the secular civil side uh, was established in the constitution um, and exists to kind of protect the constitution, enforce the laws and the standards. The Sharia court system has been developed by each of the individual states and for the federal territories by the federal government uh, and, and was centered initially around family law issues such as inheritance and divorce. 
But under that clause of Article 3, saying that Islam is the religion of the Federation, this has really kind of been the basis for expanding that uh, power of the Sharia court system. It's important to remember that Malaysia is a highly diverse society with only just over half the population as ethnic Malays and around over 60% of the population as Muslim. So the two larger ethnic Malay parties, the United Malay National Organization, or UMNO, and the Islamic party known uh, by its initials PAS or PAS, uh, really seized on ethnic and religious concerns of this Malay majority to expand uh, the scope of the Sharia court system. And as we have reported in the past, Malays, ethnic Malays, are constitutionally defined to be Muslim. Um, they legally can only be identified as uh, Muslim. And so all ethnic Malays fall under the jurisdiction of the Sharia courts, whether or not they personally identify as Muslim or not. Uh, and this has led to a whole host of religious freedom violations, especially since the government only recognizes the Sunni uh, Islam, uh, Sunni school of Shafi Islam. Uh, the secular judiciary at times has been at odds with the parliament, and especially in the 1980s, this proved particularly contentious, culminating in 1988 when the parliament amended the constitution, restricting the role of civil courts in part, preventing uh, them from having jurisdiction over issues that the Sharia courts uh, have jurisdiction over. Um, but in recent years, the civil courts have been a little more assertive. Patrick, you mentioned the uh, civil courts uh, uh, were more assertive in, in recent years here at the end there. In what ways uh, you know, has, has this impacted religious freedom and affected the dynamic between those two uh, parallel legal structures, the, the uh, secular and the uh, Sharia? Right. Well, the federal court and other courts on the civil side in Malaysia have been employing different legal tools in the last few years in a number of decisions, uh, some of which have affected uh, religious freedom uh, conditions. For example, in the Indira Gandhi case in 2018, the federal court basically uh, the, the used a basic structure argument to assert itself and its place in the protection of minorities as part of the constitution. This court, this case took around, it took over 10 years um, to be decided. So it's, it's a very slow process, but uh, its effect was actually a, a pretty big deal. The federal court overruled a court of appeals decision stating that the law had been broken when Indira Gandhi's children had been unilaterally converted without her consent to Islam. Uh, and it explained that the court does have jurisdiction over constitutional issues, even if Islamic law is involved. Uh, and that was a pretty big deal because in 1988, as I mentioned before, there's an amendment that said that it, it doesn't have jurisdiction if Islamic law is involved. So the federal court really kind of asserted itself here. And this case really struck a deep chord in the hearts of the Muslim majority within Malaysia. Conversion is a very sensitive subject, uh, both by state and federal governments. Uh, and, and as we saw in the Lena Joy case um, a few years prior, uh, where a Malay woman tried to change her registration to match her faith identity, um, Malays couldn't convert. Uh, and uh, uh, the incidences of in which an individual converts outside Islam can become uh, a national scandal. Um, there have been other court cases. Uh, so, uh, more recently, in March 10th, for example, the in Kuala Lumpur, the High Court overturned 
uh, a ban on the use of the Arabic word Allah uh, by non-Muslim publications. This was a case initiated first in uh, 2008, um, in which uh, it was decided that non-Muslims could not use uh, could not use Arabic words uh, for their faith practices because there was a fear it would confuse Muslims and lead them astray. So the High Court said that no, no. Malaysian Christians are permitted to use these words in their faith practices. And of course, this, uh, this kind of precipitated a sort of social backlash. Um, there's uh, other cases on earlier in the year, in, on February 25th, the Malaysia's federal court actually ruled against the Longor's religious court uh, and declared that the state Sharia laws banning gay sex, quote unquote, against the order of nature were unconstitutional. Um, and, and this was a big deal because it, with the political instability of the last few years, uh, the federal and state governments have really cracked down um, on the LGBTI Muslim population. So we're still waiting for more court cases. For example, there's a case, an outstanding case for Ahmadiyya Muslims, whether they can legally be identified as Muslims within Malaysia. Um, and this would have implications both whether they're allowed to be you uh, called Muslims, this will affect their ability to use words like the Quran or mosques in their faith practices. Um, and if if they're not Muslim, they can't use those. And if they are Muslim, they'll fall under the jurisdiction of Sharia courts, uh, which is problematic. As I mentioned before, the Sharia courts are based on only the Shafi uh, Sunni school of Islam. Take a quick break to let you know about one of USERF's newest fact sheets, which reiterates our recommendations to the U.S. State Department regarding countries that should be designated as a country of particular concern or placed on its special watch list based on religious freedom conditions in 2020. You can find our fact sheet on USERF's recommendations to the State Department linked in the show notes as well as on our website under the publications page. Now back to Dwight to continue with today's discussion. Yeah, so it sounds like there's been some uh, cases that don't bode well for religious freedom and waiting on others. Um, as you mentioned, I also referenced in the, in the intro today, uh, Malaysia has certainly seen unprecedented un uh, political instability in recent years. How would you characterize uh, recent political developments and how they've affected the discourse and prospects for religious freedom in the country going forward? Right. And this is the important question, uh, because with the instability that it has faced in recent years, um, there's been a lot of rhetoric um, from especially the leading uh, Malay parties, Amno and Pas, uh, trying to, to portray themselves as defenders of Islam or defenders of the ethnic Malay majority um, to really put forward their interests. Uh, as you mentioned in the intro, there was a change of power in 2018 to the Pakistan Harpin government. Um, this was the first one since independence in 57. So there was a lot of hype, a lot of excitement, and a lot of promise to really kind of integrate Malaysia into, uh, into a lot of uh, international rights standards. Um, there was a promise to, for example, uh, ratify the International Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination. And, and on a lot of these promises, including the promise to ratify that, really failed to materialize. Um, and when the coalition collapsed in 
February 2020 that allowed uh, UMNO and others to jockey for power again. It's important to see what is happening at their uh, kind of internally and then also what's happening uh, in their kind of like public speeches, trying to centralize their message to the constituencies. For example, in March of this year, the president of UMNO told delegates at the party's annual general assembly that should it receive a supermajority in parliament, it would push for an amendment to the federal constitution to empower Sharia law. This is a particularly uh, disturbing statement from a religious freedom standpoint, only because UMNO has historically been more concerned with ethnic Malay issues over um, Muslim issues. So this statement could be interpreted to really demonstrate combining these two uh, concerns, Malay and and Muslim concerns, into one. Uh, And its promise isn't without precedent. During its time as a leading party, in uh, the governing coalition until 2018, it helped push more than 50 amendments to shape the government according to its design and to amend the the constitution. During these last few years of political instability, we've really seen religious actors and political parties across the spectrum, but especially in unknown past, uh, really uh, being existentially threatened by issues affecting um, a specific version of the specific version of Islam. For example, we've seen them crack down on uh, the LGBT community. On January 6th, we saw the Shah Alam Syria court, uh, high court. We charged a trans woman, Nur Sajat, for bringing contempt to Islam, for dressing in clothes that matched her gender identity. And they pursued her on March 1st. They sent 122 personnel and enforcement officers to find and arrest her. She has fled the country, fearing her safety, receiving death threats within Malaysia, um, but it doesn't look like the religious authorities are really going to drop the case. Um, and at the local level, we see religious freedom continue to be imperiled in certain states. For example, in the northeastern Malaysian state of Kalantan, we saw amendments become implemented on November 1st, just a few days ago, uh, that ha- were based on Sharia law banning about two dozen activities, including attempts to convert outside of Islam. Well. You know, it certainly sounds like we're seeing a spiral down, as, as I mentioned. Uh, we also have a long-standing uh, case, uh, the case of Pastor Raymond Coe, that's been a feature in our Religious Prisoners of Conscience project for about a year now. Uh, you know, in February 2017, his car was stopped on a highway outside Kuala Lumpur as he was disappeared by a group of about 15 men. And later in uh, 2017, in October, uh, the independent uh, human rights institution uh, for Malaysia, uh, uh, known as Suhakam, declared his case, as well as a number of others, as incidents of enforced disappearances in which uh, forces connected with the government has caused his disappearance. The Pakatan Harapan uh, government at the time uh, set up a task force to investigate this case, and it continued even after the fall of the coalition and the rise of others. Can you tell our audience where his uh, uh, case is, where the investigation now stands, and is there any further uh, news on Pastor Co? Yeah, so the short answer, honestly, is is no, unfortunately. Uh, the long answer is that this is a very contentious issue uh, for Malaysia right now, and it really demonstrates the limitations of the government's ability to really kind of focus on those most affected uh, by a 
kind of growing conservative, uh, ethno-religious nationalist kind of um, uh, approach. Uh, so Pastor Co's story is extremely uh, frightening. The CCTV footage of his car being stopped on a highway outside of Kuala Lumpur um, and, and him being just abducted uh, in 2017 uh, really shocked the nation. Um, and then when Suhakam came out with its report uh, a few months later that uh, he was just one of many incidences of enforced disappearance, um, it, it, there was a really there was really a lot of hope that when the Pakistan Harpan government came in, these kind of issues would be addressed. Uh, the task force was supposed to release its uh, findings uh, in early last year, and it, it's it's just continued to delay those incidences. Pastor Ko was targeted in part because of his um, identity as a faith leader, a Christian faith leader, and he had come uh, up against the authorities in the past before his disappearance, as some had accused him of trying to convert uh, Muslims away from Islam, uh, which has been repeatedly denied by him and, and his advocates, including his wife. And so it's it's really it's really unfortunate um, that the task force hasn't released its findings, um, but it also demonstrates the continued need for us to talk about Pastor Co uh, and others such as Amri Shaymat, uh, who are still disappeared, whose whereabouts are known, whose families are still waiting for answers. So un unfortunately, there, there are no updates at this time, and there hasn't been updates for quite a length of time into his condition or whereabouts. Well, we'll certainly uh, highlight that through our Religious Prisoners of Conscience project, uh, but hopefully we, we get some movement there. Now, finally, you know, given how conditions uh, have been uh, deteriorating in a number of areas, uh, including because of the political instability, can you tell us how the United States government in particular, and, and if it's applicable to the international community, how can, how can they weigh in to help ameliorate the situation? What, what are some of the specific recommendations uh, that we put forward uh, on uh, for Malaysia to try to improve conditions on the ground. Right. Well, even as we've talked about a lot of the negative trends within Malaysia, it's important to remember that they are still, uh, to some degree, a very robust democracy. They, they still value rule of law. They still value the democratic process. And in this way, even as we're talking negatively about it, um, it's really kind of in a spirit of one democracy to another, the U.S. government should work as a partnering uh, a government to help raise the profile of religious freedom, to, to raise issues that would make its society more stable and its democracy more robust. Um, and in this way, uh, USERF has in, in the past uh, recommended that we fund and implement training on community-based policing, uh, and we could kind of uh, do a joint training uh, through the U.S. Department of uh, Justice and Department of Homeland Security and their Malaysian counterparts to better promote shared practices uh, and in, on interacting with faith communities. We also urge the Malaysian government to repeal the federal and state level laws criminalizing blasphemy and apostasy. We've seen that these laws are really used by um, religious authorities to pursue um, and prevent uh, the full exercise of religious freedom 
Uh, so removing these constitutional links between uh, uh, these constitutional uh, and legal laws would help ameliorate the situation. Um, and then also uh, the pressure needs to be continued, even as we're trying to work with them. Um, USERF continues to advocate that the U.S. Department of State uh, label Malaysia on a special watch list for engaging or tolerating in these severe violations. Um, Malaysia is uh, a leading economy in the region. It's it's developed. It's got it's at a important crossroads in its history, um, and, and it's important for the U.S. government to continue to try and partner um, with Malaysia to promote uh, a legal system that really enshrines religious freedom uh, for all of its citizens, uh, Muslim, non-Muslim, and alike. Well, we'll have to leave it right here, but I wanna thank Patrick Greenwald, the user of policy analyst for joining us today and sharing his insights uh, on the situation in Malaysia. You can uh, find his new uh, Malaysia country update uh, on our website, along with our most recent uh, uh, chapter, annual report chapter, and the full set of U.S. policy recommendations as well. As always, thanks for tuning in today, and we'll see you next time on USERF Spotlight. To learn more about USERF and about global religious freedom concerns, visit usurf.gov. That's U-S-C-I-R-F dot gov. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at USCIRF. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week for another USERF Spotlight. <laughs>